so Ezekiel 37. And as you turn there, I remind you that as we read God's Word and as we ponder it and how it applies to our lives today, may I remind you that these words are inspired by the very Spirit of Jesus Christ. He inspired the prophet many years ago. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out of the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Father, we thank you for giving us this privilege this morning of gathering together as your people, resurrected by the power of your Spirit. We thank you for your prophet Ezekiel. We thank you for these incredible words that you inspired through your Spirit for him to write 2,600 years ago for us to read today. Gathering in this restaurant, Father, people from every tribe and nation and tongue have gathered together, Father, for exactly one purpose, to display your glory in this city and to the nations. We thank you for these words, and I pray as we consider them, as we consider how we can more effectively glorify you by making and developing disciples, that you would grip us and that we would leave this place different, that we would be changed with further desire and zeal for your glory, Father. And I pray that you would bless this time 
that you would be active in this place with the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. No matter how unusual a passage may be, and let's be honest, for many of you that have never read this passage before, this is probably kind of a weird, somewhat unusual passage. But I can assure you that God's word is alive and speaks to us today. And the very well-known and common passages, like we talked about last week, the two lost sons, a very well-known story. And even this, the much less well-known story for many of us, is equally God's word and equally profitable for us. And we need to hear from God's word today, including from passages like this one. Just to give you an idea of what we're talking about, to give you the context, the historical context, the prophet Ezekiel, who by God's Spirit wrote these words, he lived in the 6th century B.C. And so right about 600 years before Jesus came, so from today, about 2,600 years ago, is when he lived. Now, he was a priest that lived in Jerusalem and served God in the temple. And so he was a priest by trade, later called to be a prophet, which is what he wrote about in his book. But he was a priest. And so he did the priestly duties and sacrifices and so forth in the temple. And so Ezekiel was living in Jerusalem when the evil invading army, the Babylonians, the enemies of God, when they came, when they invaded, and they destroyed the towns, burned their fields, and took the Israelites captive back to Babylon, to modern-day Iraq. And so Ezekiel was there when he saw the destruction and the very place where he would go worship in God's presence, the temple, leveled, destroyed. Ezekiel and along with the other Israelites from the kingdom of Judah, they experienced great pain, great disappointment, being ripped from everything that they knew, taken from their home, and taken to a foreign land, a pagan land of Babylon. That's what was happening to the people of God in this era. And Ezekiel was among the ones that were taken from Jerusalem and to live out the rest of his life in Babylon. Displaced, exiled in a foreign pagan land. And so the people of God find themselves in a very difficult, hopeless, filled with despair situation. And in the middle of this, Ezekiel is called to be a prophet, to speak for God, and to give the people that are now in exile hope. For indeed there is hope. And the reason why there is hope is that no matter how bleak it looks, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how disappointed you are, no matter how bad the pain is, and many of you this morning know what I'm talking about. In your own way, life is difficult. Life is disappointing. Maybe it's your job with your boss. Maybe it's your marriage isn't going the way you want it. Maybe your kids aren't turning out. Maybe your finances aren't turning out. I don't know what's ailing you. Maybe it's a physical illness. Maybe it's just the future is uncertain. Maybe your contract hasn't been renewed and you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe, I don't know. But God knows. God knows what's on your heart this morning. And he knows what's troubling you today. And no matter how much it may be disappointing or frustrating or painful, there is good news because God has a plan. 
God has a plan. He had a plan for the ancient Israelites, and he has a plan for you and me and for our church and for this city and for this country to be used to glorify him in the world, and he has a plan for you. No matter what you're going through, and the message of Ezekiel speaks loud and clear, and it's a fresh word from God that as a faith family, we must hear today. And so the main idea for this text is that God has a plan to restore his people. So God has a plan to restore his people. That is what this passage is about, that God has a plan to restore his people. And so this prophetic vision of a valley filled with dry bones is indeed a prophecy that is pointing to the reality that God is at work in the world and he is going to, he is actively restoring his people. He is actively doing it. And there are three truths from this passage, a lot more that could be said, but we only have a few minutes on, on a Friday morning. So we'll focus on three truths that flow from this main idea that he is actively restoring his people. And so God's plan to restore his people, number one, reveals the problem. If something needs to be restored, then something happened in the first place that is causing it to need restoration. There is a problem. And so in this text, God is revealing to us the problem. And I use the on purpose. I use the definite article, the, not the indefinite a. It's not a problem. It's the problem. And God is revealing it. As a priest, Ezekiel was not allowed to touch a corpse. A priest would never touch a dead body. It was prohibited because then the priest would be unclean. And so can you imagine a priest in this vision, caught up in the spirit, he says, and he sees, he finds himself in a huge valley full of human bones. Can you imagine how horrified a priest would have been? He's never touched a dead body in his life, and now everywhere he looks, he's being surrounded by and he's brushing up against the bodies of dead people, or what's left, the bones, but nonetheless, graphic and horrifying to a priest. But then what God says to him, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Imagine. It's bad enough that this priest is in this valley of dry bones, but God defines what these bones are. This is the whole house of Israel, God tells him. That would have been absolutely shocking and unthinkable to an Israelite because an Israelite would have never, ever, ever left a body out in the wilderness to just rot. They would always have a proper burial for fellow Israelites. Because if you left a dead body out in the open, what would happen to it? The wild animals would eat it. The scavengers would circle around and start to eat it until only bones were left. And so who was left out in the open to rot and be eaten by wild animals? Well, the enemies of God would have been. Those that were accursed of God would have been left out in the open. Someone from God's people would have never been left out in the open just like that to be eaten by the scavengers. Someone from the family of God, someone from the Israelite clan, an Israelite would have been given a proper burial to honor that body 
and to honor the image of God that that human represents. And so Israelites took great care of their deceased. They embalmed, they, they, they put spices, they would wrap the body, they would bury the body. And so the Israelites cared for the deceased. And so for Ezekiel to hear, okay, this field of dead human beings are the Israelites, would have just to him been devastating. How is it possible that Israelites were left out in the open in an unburied grave? This is a very clear sign. Ezekiel was a prophet, but he was also a priest. And so he knew the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. He knew the Torah. He knew very well that a body left out in the open was a sign of being cursed by God. And he knew the words of Moses out of Deuteronomy 28, which tells us that if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, he says, all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Deuteronomy 28, 15. And so the prophet Moses had revealed that God was telling his people, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. If you do not obey me, you're going to be cursed. And so God told them, and they knew that. They had heard from the prophets about the need to obey God and to be a people who are holy because God is holy. So the Israelites willingly knew this and entered into the relationship with God. And so now that Ezekiel is seeing a field with dry bones, that is a sign of being cursed by God. This is very graphic. Ezekiel understands exactly what's going on here. He understands that this vision of the people of God being cursed is because they have broken God's laws. They have rebelled against God. They have not obeyed God. They have gone into the arms of another lover of these idols repeatedly. They have been unfaithful to God. And so therefore, the promise that I will bless you if you obey and you will be cursed if you disobey, this vision of dry bones is clearly the curses upon God's people for having broken the covenant, having broken God's laws, having disobeyed and pursued the idols. Now, lest it be too hard on the Israelites, how many times do we do things, do we pursue things that we know is not good for us? That we, knowing, we walk right into that situation with full knowledge that it's not going to end well for us. We know that in the end, this is probably not going to be a blessing for us, but we go ahead and do it, or buy it, or eat it, or whatever. Anyway, we do it anyway. And I think the reason is because deep down inside, we don't actually believe that God's word applies to us. We think, well, I know I shouldn't be doing this or I shouldn't be doing that, but it's going to be okay. And it's not going to hurt anyone. And so I can go ahead and do this or whatever that it for you may be. And the reason is that sin is really deep. It's very deep. And so the Israelites find themselves in exile. 
But even beyond the pain of the exile, this vision that God is showing to Ezekiel of a, of a field of bones that are unburied under the curse of God is showing a deeply spiritual problem that our sin is deep, and it was just as deep for the Israelites back then, that they had rebelled against a holy God, and they're under God's curse, under the curse of sin and death. And so if it wasn't bad enough that there's an army of dead Israelites, but they're dead under God's curse, because that's what happened if you read back in Genesis He said, cursed is the ground, and God put a curse upon the earth. And now we brought it upon ourselves, but nonetheless, the world is fallen and corrupted. And so the problem with humanity is sin. It's not just that we need more education. It's not that we need better economical structures. No, no, no. The problem is sin. Our politicians would seem to think that the answer is more programs. It seems like every country is the same. If we, education is the key. Well, and to a degree, maybe, but what we need is the gospel. That is what changes families, and that is what changes cultures. That's what changes civilization as a whole is the gospel. That is what we need. That is what truly only is able to truly change a human being. And so what we're seeing here in this vision of dry bones is God is saying something about humanity. And he says, and the bones were very dry. That means that these bones had been dead for a very long time. And so under God's righteous, holy judgment, that's where humans stand. We stand under God's deserved judgment. And this is not a popular message for us today, but... It's in the Bible. We've rebelled, and sin leads to death. God told us in the Garden of Eden, on the day that you disobey, on the day of the fruit, you will surely die. And so our sin leads to death. And we're seeing this in graphic detail with this valley of dry bones. And so if you read verse 3 again, and he said to me, son of man, Can these bones live? Well, God here is asking Ezekiel, what do you think, Ezekiel? Can these bones live? I would probably say, is there multiple choice? Um, Can you repeat the question? Like, I I would be like, I don't really know. I don't really want to answer that because I don't really know. But Ezekiel, Ezekiel knows that, you know, long before him, the prophet Elijah, prophet Elisha did resurrect the dead. And so Ezekiel knows the Bible. He knows that God can do it. He's read it's happened before. But there's no precedence for this kind of question. It's like, God, are you sure? I mean, really? Okay, Elijah and Elisha resurrected those that had recently died. The body was still intact. But these are a valley of very dry bones that have been dead for a long time. And it's a very complicated question. It really is pretty complex. Not just because it's bones versus a body. But see, here's the thing. He knew that they did not deserve a resurrection. He knew that this body of cursed 
dry bones was evidence that they had broken the covenant. They had rebelled. They deserved this condemnation. And so he knows, well, God, we certainly don't deserve a resurrection. We deserve this curse because we have rebelled against you, God. And so he knows that God can. He hasn't ever seen this, this kind of miracle before, but they don't deserve it. And he knows it. So the second half of the verse is so powerful. He says, and I answered, O Lord God, you know. He's showing great trust and humility and wisdom because he's aware of the problem, the curse of sin and death. He knows that we're sinful. He knows that there is death because they've rebelled. He doesn't know how God's going to solve the problem. He's aware that there is a problem, but he doesn't, he doesn't have any idea how God could possibly solve this problem of death, this problem of sin, because the Israelites rebelled and broke their side of the agreement, and not God. And so the only thing he can say is, oh, Lord God, you know. I don't know the mind of God. I don't pretend to understand, Ezekiel is saying, but he is saying, I trust you. And Ezekiel was about to see the supernatural power of God and how God was about to solve this problem of sin and death, this curse. He had a problem that God was going to solve. And so the second point here is that God's plan reveals a solution. So God's plan reveals the problem, which is sin, but it also reveals the solution. Verse 4, then God said to me, prophesy over these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And so the solution was to prophesy. The word there is preach. So he says, preach to these dry bones. That is God's solution. You think, really? That's the solution? Talk to the dry bones? How is that going to change anything? The preaching of the gospel changes everything. If you're here today and you're wondering, God, my problems are so big, nothing can possibly change them. The gospel proclaimed through the power of the Spirit absolutely can change your life. It does. That's what God does. He is in the, in the business of resurrection and of transformation, and he does it with the power of the preached word. And so verse 5 and 6, it says, And thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So God promises that through the faithful preaching of his word, that it is effective to resurrect the dead. I mean, this is absolutely remarkable. And then verse 7, Ezekiel says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. He obeyed. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. Behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. Picture a valley where Ezekiel is alone, alive. And there's a valley full of dry bones. There is no sound whatsoever. Eerie silence that is interrupted 
by a sound. A sound that causes Satan and his demons to shudder in fear. A sound that gives us hope. A sound that is beautiful and terrifying. A sound that displays the beauty and glory and power of God. This sound is a rattling. This eerie dead silence is interrupted by a rattling. As these bones begin to come back together again. This is the sound of Jesus' victory over death itself. This rattling. And then verse 8, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And so they come together supernaturally, and so now you have the sinews, the, the ligaments, and, and the flesh, the muscles, and appears, and skin covers, so now you have a mighty army, but there was no breath in them. They were still dead. They weren't alive. Verse 9. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, preach, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come forth the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. He says, prophesy to the breath, preach to the breath. Now the word for breath in the original Hebrew language is the same word for spirit. Ruach. It's the word for breath. It's the same word for spirit. And so he is saying, preach about the Holy Spirit. He's saying, preach concerning the Spirit of God. And so what happens is he is preaching the word to these dead bodies in the power of the Spirit. And then it says the Spirit, the breath came into them, and they were brought to life. Do you have any idea what Ezekiel was talking about 2,600 years ago. He is talking about what happens here on Friday mornings. He's talking about what happens when someone hears a gospel preached and there are people in this room that are spiritually dead. Now that sounds so weird, but the Bible describes that people that don't have Jesus, that have not repented and believe in him, are dead on the inside, spiritually are cadavers. But then the word is preached through the power of the Spirit, and all of a sudden, that person is sitting there and realizes, oh, oh, I'm a sinner. And Jesus died for me. And that person repents and places a complete trust in Jesus. And that spiritual cadaver has the Holy Spirit breathe into them, and they're made alive. That is what God is in the business of doing, and he does it at ECC of Island, and he's doing it all around the world as we're seeing people born again of the Spirit, brought to life spiritually to live new lives that are victorious over habitual patterns of sin, victorious over hopelessness, victorious over what plagues us. And do we guarantee you that you're going to have no problems in life? Well, of course not. But can I guarantee you hope? Yes. Can I guarantee you God's presence in the middle of that pain? Yes. Can I guarantee you fulfillment and satisfaction even if life is unkind to you? Yes. 
That is the supernatural power of God. That is what he does. In verse 10, is remarkable. He says, and so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army brought to life, resurrection. And so the problem with humanity is our sin. The fact that we are fallen, that is our significant, at the deepest level, problem. And the solution, the solution is a resurrection. That's what it is. See, God's plan is to resurrect people, to give them new hearts, new lives, new nature, new desires, everything made radically new. But let's not forget the historical context. Ezekiel is prophesying to people that are in exile. They're languishing in Babylon. They're suffering. They're no longer in the promised land. And verse 11 addresses, he says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. And we are indeed cut off. The, the temple was gone. The promised land was gone. Their hope was gone. In the face of this disappointment and this great pain, they should not have forgotten, and we can't forget today, that God has a plan. The world is not spiraling out of control. God has a plan. Verse 12 tells us, Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. So he's promising them a future resurrection, but also a future restoration to the promised land. And that did happen. Not many years later, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. So the Persians became the world superpower, not the Babylonians. And under the, the Persian rule, a man named Ezra, led the, the exiles back to the promised land. And so they did return to the promised land. But the fulfillment of this prophecy is so much more and points so much more further and is so much bigger than just the Jews being allowed to return to their land under a new political regime. It's so much bigger than that. This prophecy is pointing to Jesus of Nazareth. This passage is connected to the previous chapter where Ezekiel is also prophesying. It's just one chapter before, chapter 36, verses 26 through 28. This is the prophecy of the future. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This prophecy points to Jesus. Jesus did not come to establish a new religion. I know there are those in our society that believe that. That Jesus came to just establish, set up some new religion. He did not come for that. He did not come 
to give us a good example to live by. There are some that will say, hey, well, you know, Jesus, you're a good man, good teacher, well-respected, and so we need to follow his example and follow the teachings of Christ. And so some say he came to establish a religion or he came to give us good teaching so that we can learn how to be better humans and learn how to love others and follow the example of some sacrifice that Jesus gave. He did not come for an example for us to follow. Jesus did not come to say, okay, clean yourself up. Here's more religion so that you can then be a better human and, and be a good person and have enough points so that your good points can outdo your bad points. So in the end, you can get to heaven or paradise or nirvana or whatever, whatever religion calls it. Jesus did not come for any of those things. Jesus came to resurrect the spiritually dead, to give us a new heart, to give you his Holy Spirit, to transform us from the inside out. This is so radical. This is not another religion. He says, I have come to give you a new heart. And this is what's different from true Christianity, not this cultural, I'm a Christian, I'm an American, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm not talking about this Western Christianity. I'm talking about true, born of the Spirit, followers of Christ. What's different is this right here. He says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. He says, I'll give you my spirit, and I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. This is totally different. He's talking about changing your desires, changing your heart, where now because of his spirit living in you, now we want to obey. We have our desire now is to obey Jesus. Radically different from a religion that says, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do that. So this vision is so powerful. It's describing that humanity is spiritually dead. Are we any different from the Israelites? Well, of course not. Jesus alone kept God's law. Jesus alone maintained the covenant requirements. Jesus alone was sinless. Jesus alone was perfect. And so on the cross, Jesus endured. Jesus literally bore the curse of sin and death. And so all of the curses, all of God's holy wrath was literally poured on Jesus. And he endured the curse. He endured our sin, our condemnation, our guilt, God's wrath. And when he died and then was resurrected, he was victorious over the curse. The cross of Christ is the solution to the problem of sin and death. This all points to Jesus. This resurrection and this valley dry bones points, first of all, to Jesus' resurrection and then to our spiritual resurrection on the inside. And after we die, the hope of a future physical resurrection. Or we will live in the land, as it says in these verses. We will live forever in the promised land. And I'm talking about the new heaven, the new earth, the ultimate promised land. That will be our inheritance forever. So God has a plan to restore his people. He reveals the problem, which is sin and death. He reveals the solution, which is the resurrection, Christ's and ours. Lastly, number three, as we close, the purpose. He reveals the purpose. Why 
did he reveal this plan? Why did he? I mean, if we begin to understand this, this somewhat unusual text, we understand that it points to Christ. But do we understand why? Why? Remember something. God kept his end of the agreement. God is the one that said, if you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, it won't go well for you. Well, God was faithful. God was faithful to them. He kept providing for them. He kept blessing them. They were the ones that were unfaithful. We're the ones that are unfaithful. And so why would God have his son die on the cross in our place when we don't even deserve it? Why would he do that? Verse 13. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O oh, my people. She's promising that his people will be resurrected, brought out of their graves. Why? Here's the key phrase. You shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 14 says it again. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it declares the Lord. This is beautiful. God gives us a hope for eternity. The hope that we'll live in our own land. We will truly be home. We will have a home. Home is such a moving target. And you think, well, where's home? Abu Dhabi isn't home. And this week, talking to my wife has been so confusing because we're talking about visiting the U.S. for July. And, and we've been talking for months. We're going to go visit family in July. And then I've noticed the last month the, the conversation has kind of evolved. We're going to go home for July. And it's like the closer we get to July, the more we're going home. And I'm like, no, we're not going home. Home is here. God has called us to Abu Dhabi, our faith family. This is home. Texas is not home anymore. And she's like, well, yes, it is. I'm like, no, it's not. Well, it sort of is. Well, it sort of isn't. And this is this confusing conversation on where is home. And all of us don't even know what home is anymore. I bet many of you don't even know what home is. You already forgot. You, you've been gone for so long and been in different places, and you don't have a house in your home country anymore. And the, the idea, the concept of a home is this difficult reality for those of us that are expats. And yet we have the promise that you will have your own land. You will have home. An eternal home awaits us. We're just passing through. We're just in the airport, getting through customs. Yes, it's long sometimes. And sometimes the line is long and painful and frustrating. But you know what? You get through that. It's not forever. This too shall pass. We're going to be home in our own good land. Why? so that you will know that I am the Lord. What is God's purpose? Why is God doing this for his honor and glory and for the praise of his name? God's purpose is to receive glory. He is zealous for his glory. He has saved us because he loves us. He loves us because he has saved us. It goes hand in hand. We are the object of his affections because he loves us. And he loves us because we're the object of his affections. It's this circular reality that points to God's glory. He loves you. He loves you. 
And he hates seeing us languishing in sin and death. And he loves you so much that he sent his son to give us resurrection on this side of heaven spiritually, to be alive on the inside, to experience the pleasure and the joy and the presence of God, but then the future hope of a resurrection after we die to live home in heaven forever. We have that hope we can cling to. It's real, and God is doing it for one purpose, so that you will know that he is the Lord. He wants all the credit and all the glory because he alone deserves it, because he alone is worthy. We don't deserve it. And so living a resurrected life, what does that mean as we close? What does it mean to live a resurrected life? Well, first of all, if you're here and you've never repented and believed in Jesus as your only Savior, then living a resurrected life begins with repenting today, asking God to save you, asking him to forgive you, and he will give you his spirit, and he will change you, and you will experience spiritual resurrection. But those of us that already have received Christ, that we already have been resurrected on the inside, the resurrected life continues. It continues as we continue to pursue Jesus and fight against our selfish desires because our world tells us if it feels good, do it. That's what our world tells us. If it feels good, if it's going to make you, quote, happy, if you can find a measure of self-centered enjoyment and no one's going to be hurt through it, then go ahead and do it. And so that's what we do. We tend to live for our own, quote, happiness not realizing that that is a lie from the pit of hell itself. It doesn't bring happiness. When we live for our selfish ambitions, it brings the opposite. It brings death because those temptations come from the, from the grave itself because they can't satisfy. I mean, this is a mall culture, is it not? And with, with the weather getting warmer, this is totally a let's go to the mall. And in the mall, you see people acquiring more stuff and eating so much food. I mean, it's remarkable living here because we all want to be indoors that it's right in our face all the time. And we see all the things that you can own, all the things that you can acquire and buy and eat and enjoy and drive and live in. And so we actually believe that if we will just pursue those things, we'll be happy. And the scriptures tell us over and over, no you won't, because it doesn't satisfy. Only Jesus can do that. So living a resurrected life is experiencing the joy of the presence of the Spirit every day, living for his glory and conquering these patterns of habitual, self-destructive behavior. So I say praise God that he made a way, that yes, it was a problem, Yes, he solved it with his son crucified for his own glory to be displayed. And praise God that Jesus endured the curse, that we can have resurrection. I praise God that these dry bones can live. Pray with me. Father, we are humbled. We are in awe. We are thankful. We're thankful for this passage. We're thankful for all of your word, for indeed we know that transformation 
resurrection flow from your word, proclaiming the power of your spirit. I pray you would help us to preach this gospel to ourselves every single day, that we would remind ourselves from your word that we don't deserve it, left to ourselves we'd be dead, but Father, because you are good and you love us and you're zealous for your glory, you have made a way for us to experience resurrection, to experience a truly changed life, to experience you and the abundance that flows from that. I thank you for our faith family. I thank you for the hunger that you've given to us for your word. I thank you, Father, for this resurrection that we have and that we look forward to one day. Thank you. Thank you for your son. And we pray in his name and for his glory's sake.